Welcome to this week's episode of the Entrepreneurs United podcast. This week, we sit down with Callum Lang. In addition to being the CEO of MBH Corporation, Callum is a three-time author, speaker, and advocate for small businesses globally. As Callum says during our conversation, the reset button has been pressed, and it's time for entrepreneurs to collaborate and develop progressive partnerships. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. One of the reasons I really enjoyed, uh, you know, talking to you over the past year and a half is really what you're doing with MBH Corporation, and you know, really there's a new era of entrepreneurship among us. And I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that uh, today with us, and and really dive into, you know, if you're an entrepreneur in 2020 and looking at the future that's ahead of you, you know, what are some of the opportunities that exist out there for small businesses and this new era of entrepreneurship? That's a Big topic. Huge. <laughs> How long have we got? <laughs> um, yeah, look, 2020 is uh, it's one of those, it's going to go down in history as one of those interesting years for small business. Um, I think it, it's what I'm finding very interesting about it. You, you know that, and we've talked about this a lot, so that the world's obsessed with startups and kind of Silicon Valley and all of that sort of stuff. And uh, my interest has always been more established businesses. So, um, yeah, most of the businesses that we end up working with, the founders are in their 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, the businesses are a couple of decades old often. Um, and it's when, you, when you've been through downturns, so everyone that we work with has been through 2008, uh, 2009, the global financial crisis, at least that and yep. and probably probably something else as well so it's very interesting watching the way they've reacted to this situation um and firstly i think they reacted very quickly like as soon as there was a realization that that this wasn't uh you know that, that this was going to turn into something they reacted very quickly. They spoke, um, you know, they talked to their staff, they talked to their clients, they communicated very well with them about what was going on. But I've also noticed they have a very different view when they're looking at their competitors and they're looking at the marketplace. So they are looking at opportunities to collaborate straight away. They're also looking at potential opportunities to do acquisitions. Um, so it's a very, uh, it's a very um, uh, approach that's very targeted and looking at what are the opportunities rather than sort of wallowing in all, all of the challenges that have been presented. Yeah. You know, I know certainly um, speaking to a lot of entrepreneurs going through this time and I, and I know, you know, you speak a lot about it and, and it's something that's, I think is very important to us as entrepreneurs is the collaboration. And I know Rich, you do a lot of it with your franchisees that yeah. you work with and, you know, why, why do you think, Callum, it's so important for entrepreneurs to collaborate together? Certainly as MBH, you guys work with a lot of small businesses that you bring together to work together. What are the benefits of collaboration versus just going to those red oceans and, and competing with everybody? What benefits have you seen and, and think exist going forward? Yeah, so I think uh, the, the first book I wrote was called Progressive Partnerships. And it was really looking at how, how you partner with other companies to form a competitive advantage and and i think most of my learning in that area came about because i didn't have the resources to do anything else uh, yeah. you know i i didn't didn't have the money to buy the marketing services i needed so i had to 
to partner with other companies. And I learned through that kind of what works and, and what doesn't work. And um, I think what's interesting is there are certain companies or there's certain individuals that are open to collaboration at certain times and, and not open at, at other times. And, and look, we're, we're the same, you know, if you're busy with something and you've got something that's working and somebody wants to collaborate, it's probably not the right time. And uh, the approach I've always taken is, is never to focus on kind of the one partnership or the one collaboration that's going to solve everything for you. Because the minute you do that, you just put too much pressure on that collaboration. So I'm always in favor of trying to collaborate with as many people as possible. And, and, you know, some of them will work out, some of them won't, but it doesn't really matter because you've got that, um, uh, you know, you, you've got enough of it in place. So um, I, I've kind of always done collaboration. I think, again, when I've been talking to the companies within our group, but also companies external to our group, and just advise, I advise a number of companies, one of the things I said is, look, now's the time to start approaching companies about collaboration because especially, um, you know, they might not have needed to collaborate in the past, but suddenly they're looking around for, for creative solutions and they're looking around for help. So there's a really good opportunity. And I think in the small business world, this is how you compete with the big boys. Uh, it's, you know, you collaborate and you, uh, you kind of take the, what what you couldn't normally do just on your own and, and by collaborating with like-minded people you you uh, yeah, can deliver real value. Callum for those that have not collaborated much in the past do you have a way to collaborate or a, a formula or steps that an entrepreneur who's listening going yeah I'm in for collaborating like how do I approach somebody and what does that conversation even look like? Yeah, uh, look, let me um, let me give all of your listeners a, a copy of that first book, Progressive Partnerships, because it's um, uh, I'd be ha happy to do that. Uh, so I'll, I'll provide a link for that. Um, so I kind of learned this by my, most partnerships fail. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the rea that's the reality. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter how good they look on paper. Stuff happens. People get distracted. People change. Um, and, and kind of going back to my earlier point, I wasted a huge amount of time and a lot of small businesses do this. I'm glad to say it's not, not just me focusing on like the big whale, focusing on that one client contract that can change everything. And um, you, you get drawn into these conversations and, and yeah, maybe it's uh, yeah, a big corporate that's got a distribution channel that could change everything. And you get caught into this thing, but the challenge is that you're nothing to them. Um, so even though you've got a great product and you think it's brilliant, to the employee that you're dealing with, there's more career risk of them doing a partnership with you than not. So uh, yeah, they'll, they'll drag it out. They'll have meetings with you all day long because quite frankly, you're more fun than work. Um, but, but it's very rare that that deal's actually gonna work out, whereas, if you go and collaborate with other small businesses and figure out how you can create more value for them than they create for you, you can build up um, this momentum. And I was having a, a conversation uh, with a company the other day and, and the analogy I gave to him about this was he, he wanted to 
uh, partner up with Starbucks. He had, had an app. If he could get Starbucks on, on board, it would be perfect. And what I was trying to say is that Starbucks are never going to, you, you know, you'll never talk to the right person at Starbucks. Why would they even have this conversation with you? However, if you go to Bob's Little Cafe on the corner and you do a deal with them, so they become your first client, and then you go and find uh, Joe's Cafe that has a chain of 10 coffee shops and you get them on board because you're adding some some value and you keep building up and suddenly you've got 20 or 30 coffee chains partnered with you now the the dynamic has shifted and that employee at starbucks it's now a career risk for them not to partner with you because their boss is asking what who are these guys why are they partnering with everyone but us we need to be involved in that um, so understanding the mechanics of of value and how you can leverage off other people to create a value that makes you attractive to other is is a it's a really big big part of it um and uh yeah i think yeah a lot of that sort of just comes through through bitter experience but hopefully um hopefully if you read, read the book you'll you'll save yourself some pain and agony yeah i appreciate worked with uh lots of companies that had started or were part of the financial uh, recession, global recession in uh, 2008, 2009. How how collaboration occurs or how companies work with each other, uh, how's that changed from that time to this time? And what's the same? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think um, it's nothing's really changed, but the the com- every company goes through cycles, and they'll be looking for different things at different times. So, give you um, an example from my world. When uh, fifteen twenty years ago, when I first moved to Asia, I was living in Thailand, and and Thailand has uh, had at the time a lot of uh, five-star hotels in Bangkok and they were all desperately competing to get the business traffic so I could I knew that if I held a business event I could go and put a proposal to five or six hotels and they would be competing for my business and so I'd get better and better deals and you know oftentimes I could get free rooms and free F&B and, and all of this stuff because there was a, that was what they needed they needed that footfall I came to Singapore and I tried the same approach and I like people were just laughing at me and, and I couldn't work out what it was. And, and I finally got a meeting with the GM of one of the, the big hotels here. And, and he said, do you know what my problem is? And I said, yes, you, you, you need more customers. And he said, no, our average occupancy rate is 99%. The biggest problem I have is having to move regular returning customers into my competitors' hotels because I can't place them. I was like, right, well, my strategy is not going to work here, is it? <laughs> so understand, like, companies will go through these cycles where sometimes they need new, new customers, sometimes they need more support on operations. Um, so you need to understand what that is. Um, but what's interesting about today's scenario um, in the middle of 2020 is that everyone's kind of open to new ideas. There's this kind of reset button has been pressed. So it's a great time to kind of be creative and go and propose solutions because, um, you know, 
pe people are open to solutions that six months ago would would never have, have even crossed their mind yeah that's for sure yeah Callum it's interesting you know I'll come back to the comment you said which is you know most partnerships fail and it's a pretty hmm. bold statement right because when you think about what a partnership is uh, I think what you're talking about is going into business with a, one or two partners and creating a partnership uh, level yet being a sole entrepreneur is also pretty scary and lonely and you know, uh, that kind of stuff. And, and certainly uh, having been an entrepreneur myself, you know, you know that sometimes a CEO job can be a very lonely thing, especially if you're in a sole proprietorship and you're running yeah, into sure. things like a recession or the COVID crisis. What is, what is the solution? Because if partnerships mostly fail, so you shouldn't do that, but being a sole entrepreneur is lonely, so maybe you shouldn't. What, what, what's, what's the way you look no, at so it? I didn't say you shouldn't do that. I should okay. said you should go. You need to know that. Okay. Um, so really what, what I talk about is understanding that that most partnerships not necessarily fail but they're not necessarily going to deliver what you expect them to do right. um uh, as somebody asked me the other day what's the secret to to a happy marriage and i said lower your expectations um and it's uh, you know it's a, it's a pretty good rule of that i've spent the last 20 years telling my wife to lower her expectations on me it's uh, it's working well so far um but yes, yeah, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of the same idea with partnerships. So where partnerships tend to go wrong, whether it's a business partnership or just trying to find, you know, do a marketing partnership or a, you know, uh, something at a business level, oftentimes we just put an enormous amount of pressure. We need that deal to work. So that's why we, we did the partnership and we become obsessed about, you know, we, you've got to do this and you've got to hit these targets. And, and the reality is, that person's got their own life and their own priorities and, and other things. And, and the, the, almost the way to guarantee failure is to put too much pressure on, on a partnership is it's kind of be like being the needy, needy partner in a relationship. You, you don't want to do that. Whereas the more options you have, the less pressure you need to put on any one relationship. So it's, when I talk about most partnerships fail and, and the idea behind the book progressive partnerships is look, I'll go into a partnership and while I hope it works, I don't need it to work because I'm leveraging off that partnership to do the next partnership. Um, and then I leverage off that partnership to do the, the next partnership. And, and so even if they don't deliver, well, I mean, and look, as entrepreneurs, we do this all the time. You know, we we land one client and we're already talking to another. Oh, yeah, no, we've, we've been working with these guys for years. And, you know, we've le we're leveraging off that brand to get to the next thing. So, um, and in that way, even if that client, the first client fails or falls over for whatever reason, we've already leveraged off their brand and their credibility to move on to the next client. So that's kind of the, the approach with partnerships. It's, it's really to acknowledge that it's probably not going to work out as you expected it will do so go out and build build it lots and and if one does work out or one relationship works out then brilliant grab it with both hands yeah and, and I, I, I love the way to reframe it you know in my head which is you know many partnerships fail well you know many marriages fail many friendships fail many you know a lot of things fail but there's a way to make it work and i love what you said about give more expect less lower your expectations and realize that some of them may just not work. Uh, but if yeah. you give more and expect less over time, you'll build an abundance of relationships that will work. 
Exactly. And it not working uh, in business, you can gather learning lessons, as you said, to leverage later. It not working in marriage is different. <laughs> you don't want to gather too many failures and assume it'll just help the next one. <laughs> well, you know what? It's true, though. But when you think about it, Rich, and you think about my own personal scenario, right? Even through uh, building a partnership that was a massive failure on my end with a, with, a, with, a, with a private equity firm, as I've shared with both of you guys before, a lot of learnings to, to make me stronger ultimately. That does, I'm not going to stop giving into relationships uh, because of that learning. I'm going to change how I, how I do it potentially. But, uh, you know, it brings me to a whole different segue, uh, Callum, which is a lot of business owners looking to grow their business and raise capital. And, and I know you know my story and, and how devastating that was for me. Uh, you know, talk to us a little bit about, you know, companies are trying to get there maybe a little too fast, as I would maybe look at raising a little too much capital, losing control of your business and the devastating effects that could have. I know you've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs that share that same story. Yeah, I, it's... Look, it, it, it's a tough one. And I um, I talked to a business owner the other day, actually was also in the States, and, and he, he had read about agglomeration and what we were doing. He said, I absolutely love it. And I'm kind of, I'm torn now between this and, and we've got a really interesting private equity deal on the table. And I said, just give me, just give me one minute. Let me just send you a podcast that I recorded with John last week. Um, so uh, I said that, said that to him. Um, Feel free to have him give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, the system's really weird at, at the moment and um, it kind of feeds in on itself and and i think that we've sort of lost track of some of the founding principles of starting business to create value for your clients and if i talk to the majority of young entrepreneurs any anywhere in the world um they're so bought into the kind of the silicon valley scale growth model um and that's become a whole weird ecosystem that's totally driven by growth for the sake of growth. You know, all, all of the questions they ask is how do, how do I raise my first set of money? Like how do I get my seed round? How do I get my uh, round two? How do, how do I uh, get my exit? So everything's about growth for the sake of valuation rather than anything about how do I create more value for my clients? Uh, you know, how do I build a team that's sustainable for the next 20 years? Nobody's interested in that stuff. It's, it's all about that. And then you've got the investor community, which just feeds into that. It's kind of, yeah, again, you've got, I mean, venture capital is kind of the extreme example where they will invest in 10 companies. They need one of them to become a unicorn. And so they put enormous pressure on those 10 businesses to make ridiculous decisions just in the hope of like hitting that one in a million chance of, of becoming a, a unicorn. And they, um, yeah, earlier this year, there was the WeWork uh, nonsense, but the, the story about him going in to see SoftBank and saying, look, I need to raise 10 million. And, and the guy goes, why are you such low expectations? I'll give you a check for a hundred million. Yep. Yeah. And then people are surprised that the guy ends up on a private jet with a suitcase full of <laughs> gear. It's yeah, it's it's just a very weird system that's built around growth. And 
Um, what I find really interesting and, and why I'm much happier talking to business owners uh, like you and a lot of the other business owners that we have in our groups is that there's much more talk about longevity. Uh, it's much more about creating something that um, has a legacy that, that you know, it, yeah, we, we, so we've just a, acquired a, a 57 year old caravanning company, for example. And, you know, these guys, we're, we're looking for companies that are going to be still doing what they're doing in another 57 years. And, and the founder wants that protected, you know, he's been creating value in his community all this time. Um, and so I think that's a very, and, and the, the thing is when you, when you have that different outcome in mind, you ask very different questions. If your outcome is purely around getting an exit valuation, then everything is focused on, on that. And so you'll ask those questions, you'll meet those people, you get dragged down that route. And, and unfortunately for business owners, typically your exit is, you, you have one or two exits in a lifetime. Whereas the private equity guys, this is their bread and butter. And for, you know, there's some, uh, I'm sure some of them are good, but you've got some snot-nosed 32-year-old with an MBA who's trying to boost their career by showing how, how clever they can be doing your deal. They'll yep. do your deal. They'll bounce onto their next uh, job position, never needing to see what happens with the outcome of that deal. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think we, we just take a very different different approach to it. And, and look, we, yeah, there, there are a few other people that, that think like us, but sadly, we, we seem to be in the minority. Yeah, it's certainly too, when you look at trying to grow your company, um, you know, relative, you know, experience for mine is, you know, two companies that are 16, 17 years old, and one took the slow march to, you know, having a strong balance sheet, continued growth, you know, continue building partnerships and, and, and a good team and employees. And the other one, you're trying to go a little too aggressive. And to your point, you know, hey, you don't need a $5 million check. You need a $20 million check. Let's go. Um, and losing control of the business. And, and ultimately, when you lose control of your business, you, you lose control of your culture. You lose control of the relationships and everything within, within the organization. So, you know, certainly something to be aware of. Yeah, look, and I don't... I don't want to say it's it's wrong because it, it's a it's a game that you can play. And if you, to be honest, if you know the rules, it's a relatively easy game to play to make quite a lot of money. And I know people that play it well. I've, I've played it to an extent, but it's not very fulfilling <laughs> because yeah, you know, you're flipping basically. You're you're building a business to flip and. Um, so that's fine if your goal is purely monetary, but if you can achieve monetary goal and create something that's lasting and delivers real value, um, for, for most people, that's, uh, that's a little bit more interesting, I hope. An entrepreneur is listening and says, hey, I've always been in it for the customer. I am on the longevity. I'm on the legacy train. I'm in for that. Uh, but there's a day coming up where I may want to cash out on evaluation and get some money for this thing. What are some yeah. things that that person should keep in mind as they go to pivot from legacy to, I want to max out value now? Yeah. So look, it, it happens to us all. It doesn't matter how, how big the vision is. Um, one day you're going to wake up and go, you know what? 
everyone else seems to be making money out of this business apart from me. Um, it's, uh, you know, like you're the one that ends up remortgaging the, the property when uh, cash flow is tight. Um, you know, you're the one that goes without salaries to make sure everyone else does. And, and, and that's fine. It's kind of, that's the, the deal that we signed up to as entrepreneurs is that we create value for others and that someday in the future we're going to get rewarded for this um the problem is if you look at the media and if you look at the uh, content around entrepreneurship it's very much around the starting and the building of the business there's very little literature about what happens at the other end sure we you know every few months there's a whatsapp gets bought for 19 billion dollars and we go yeah that's that's what i'm trying to do with my uh, uh aircon maintenance company <laughs> so but but nobody really talks about what exists out there for the average small business and, and unfortunately the reality is it's pretty depressing uh, you know that there's not a lot of options out there once you start looking and and you discover that you know, that dream you had right at the beginning that someone will give you a suitcase full of cash and you can just walk off into the distance doesn't exist. Um, yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. Uh, and so what most people end up doing is doing a trade sale to a, a bigger player. Um, so they find someone in their industry, they agree to buy them. But it's, for the acquiring company, there's a huge risk of buying a small business that has a, a, a strong entrepreneur founder. And so they will structure the deal as a three-year or a five-year earnout to protect their investment. Um, and then in something that is completely counterintuitive to all entrepreneurs, they will then try and corporatize this entrepreneurial business that they've just acquired. So for, for the entrepreneur who spent 20 years building their business, they suddenly find themselves not only an employee, but an employee that has to make, that has to execute decisions about their baby that they've built. Um, and, and in such a way that often their earnout is determined by them hitting targets, but now they can't hit targets because they, um, the, the sort of the mandate coming from the top-down company is that they need to change all of their employee contracts to the corporate standard. They need to change their client contracts to the corporate standard. They need to rebrand. So suddenly they're trying to hit these targets, which they committed to with one arm, if not two arms tied behind their back. And, and most of us can't, can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> we might, we'll try and protect our staff and our clients for as long as we can, but uh, generally entrepreneurs end up either getting fired from their own company or quitting in disgust within six to 12 months. And so, you know, that, that headline figure of, okay, this, this company has just sold themselves to a bigger player for seven times earnings. Um, that's the headline figure. Very rarely is that the figure that the person ends up putting in the bank. It's, it's, you know, oftentimes it's half of that if, if that. Um, so I think just having an awareness uh, of that and starting to get comfortable with your options. And I think, you know, what we've tried to say is look, Actually, if you start to team up with other people, you can become, you can take away the dependence on you. So one of the strategies we talk about is if an entrepreneur 
wants to sell their business, actually one of the smartest things you can do is go and buy a competitor, merge the two companies and put the competitor in charge and then sell, sell that whole thing with the competitor running it. Uh, the competitor will be thrilled because he, yeah, he's just doubled, doubled the size of his business. Um, but you get to step away from the day-to-day the -day operations and, and have an entrepreneur running it. So, so there are strategies out there, but it, there's not a lot of information out there, unfortunately. And, and the, most of the information that is out there is very, um, it tends to come from brokers and people with a very vested interest. And so it's not, probably the, the best information for business. What owners. do the acquiring companies perceive as a benefit? Because they must see the benefit, there's a benefit to putting on the corporate mandate. And then you described kind of the entrepreneur's experience of being on the receiving end of that. What, hmm. do, what do they believe is the benefit when they put the corporate mandates on and it tends to reduce growth opportunity and some of what had been built? And um, you know how boring it is being a corporate employee <laughs> <laughs> so the, the chance to go and buy a company it's great for the cv um, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious but um no look i mean th there's lots of there's lots of good reasons for an acquiring company to to grow through acquisition and um but they're, they're coming at it from a different point of view. I'll give you uh, an example in the marketing world that people are, are very familiar with, um, if you know that space. You've got the marketing world is dominated by five huge players that have just grown through acquisition. So you've got WPP, you've got Omnicom, you've got Publicis, and they just acquire smaller businesses. Um, most of the, so WPP, which is the biggest, uh, until last year was run by Sir Martin Sorrell, um, who was the CFO of Saatchi Brothers. It's an accountant, um, quite, a, quite a smart accountant. You imagine that you're running a creative agency and you get acquired by WPP and your boss is now an accountant. It's a very different mindset to the mindset that you've done. And so most creative CEOs end up leaving that uh, entity. But it still worked incredibly well for WPP because even if half the value walks out of the door, the arbitrage between what they're buying this small business for versus what a 20 billion pound PLC is trading for, uh, it still makes sense. And, and they can also, there's a whole bunch of reasons why companies will acquire other companies. And, and oftentimes, you know, in an organization like that, it can be as much about giving a new manager or giving a manager a toy to play with. It's like, okay, well, we will, we need to give you some more responsibility. Let's buy a couple more businesses and you can see what you can do with them. Um, so, so there's a whole heap of reasons. Um, and, and look, it, it clearly works on the corporate side, but we come at it from the small business side and say, look, there's, there's got to be a smarter way for small businesses to, to achieve the same goals. Yeah, Callum, you know, once having done a lot of M&A, all three of us and been involved in a lot of M&A, you know, it seems like it always comes down to, to the entrepreneur, you know, how much cash am I putting in the bank account? It's funny, you mentioned earlier, the headline says this, but what you put in the bank account is less than 50% of that. And, you know, when you think about yeah. taxes and earnouts and all the other stuff that goes on, I, I'd venture to say it's even less than that uh, sometimes, right? Or, or most times. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but it's cash, it's control. Am I going to lose control of my baby and what I've built over all these years? And culture, yeah. 
and values or these people I want to work with. And you, you said something, you know, that I had a lot of experience with is, you know, and even myself personally, I'd say probably the same for yourself, you know, entrepreneurs don't make very good employees uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, when you, when you talk to entrepreneurs and they're, and you know that they're focused on, you know, the cash control and culture, talk to us about how MBH solves that problem. How, how exactly does the agglomeration model that you guys are deploying uh, help small businesses solve the cash control and culture issues? Yeah, so M MBH was, uh, it's, I guess it's, it's the result of five years of trying to solve this problem. Uh, and basically my business partner, Jeremy, came up with this idea because we'd seen a couple of our friends sell their companies and then either get fired or fired uh, fired or resigned from their own companies mm -hmm. and um we realized that this was happening to kind of everyone all of our peers you know we, we were reaching a certain stage in our business journeys and we were looking around and going well hang about what what are we supposed to do now and so the idea behind mbh was well let's let's create the perfect acquiring company so we'll create a PLC explicitly for the use of good, well-run, profitable small businesses. The founders swap their private stock for public stock, uh, but they keep full operational control over their business. So it's their brand, it's their culture, it's their hiring and firing. Um, and now they become a joint owner of a group of companies. And, and even though they're a joint owner, they can't tell any of the other companies how they should be run. And conversely, no one can tell them how they should be run. So that kind of deals with the culture and, and control elements that they not only do they have control over their business contractually so, but with their peers, they have control over the PLC. They make up around 70% of the, the shareholders of the PLC. So if a board of directors ever tried to change the rules, they could just vote them out that they have ultimate control. So it's, a, it's the ultimate in collaboration for small business. Um, the cash question is an interesting one because, because this option hasn't existed before, we get caught up into this mindset of what we're looking for is an exit. What we're looking for is, is that pile of cash. And, and so, you know, the person that offers us the best deal, we, we kind of think that. But actually, and, and the kind of the distinction we make is we're not looking for companies that are for sale. We're looking for companies where the founders want to keep growing them. Now, yes, they might want to take some cash off the table, but that's the beauty of having a publicly listed company and swapping your private stock for public stock. Private stock has zero liquidity. You, you cannot sell it. Um, public stock, if you want to sell down 5%, you can 10%, 50%, whatever you want, you have that option to do so. And, and the nice thing about the way we structure this deal is it's a perpetual earning. So when a company joins us, the more profit they contribute each year to a holding company, the more shares in that holding company they earn. So those companies that overperform end up with a bigger slice of the pie. If they have a, they plateau or they go backwards, there's no penalty for that. But obviously that year they wouldn't earn uh, more stock. And that solves a huge problem for entrepreneurs, which is why would I sell now? Because next year is going to be my best year ever. Uh, now the always challenge is. with us entrepreneurs, <laughs> it always is, right? Um, and, and so you don't want to sell now because you know you've got that contract just around the corner. 
Well, actually, if you come and join a scenario like this with a perpetual earn in, if you get that contract next year, then great, you get the bonus shares on top of it. So we kind of designed it. It's interesting. We, we designed it very much from the bottom up, as in what we were looking for as business owners. And when you explain it to entrepreneurs, they get it straight away. They, they cannot understand why other people don't, why everyone isn't doing this. Um, yeah, I, have a, I do exactly the same pitch to an investment banker or a private equity. And they just stare blankly at me. But why would you trust an entrepreneur? Why wouldn't you fire them and put a real manager in place? <laughs> um, and and I've had that question so many times. And of course, their idea of a real manager is 32 year old with an MBA who's never managed anything in their life. Um, and whereas to me, the the 50 year old woman that's been in the industry for 30 years that knows absolutely everyone in her industry, whose staff have been with her for 20 years and would die before they were to go to a competitor. Um, that's who I want running the company. And the reason that they're still in business 20 years later is because she's actually quite risk averse. You know, she's not growing for the sake of growing. She's making decisions about, you know, I have responsibility to my clients. I have responsibility to my staff and I want to still be here next year. So I'm not going to do anything stupid. Um, and these are the companies that we want because it doesn't matter if there's a downturn. You know, if they have a couple of dull years, who cares? You know, we're, this, is a, this is a buy and hold forever type strategy. Well, the, the way I um, talk about it in, in my last book, Entrepreneurial Investing, is instead of thinking of it as a company, think of it as an ecosystem. Um, you know, if, you, if you think of it as an ecosystem, how can we create an ecosystem? So a small business owner says, you know what, we would be doing better inside that ecosystem than out here on our own. And as long as we can continue to attract good businesses into that ecosystem, some of them will die for sure. Like no, no question at all. Small businesses fail. Um, entire industries will disappear. But as long as we can keep attracting them, we should end up with a multi-generational uh, holding place for, for great companies and great people. You called it an ecosystem. Can you talk about a couple more elements of uh, what does that ecosystem include? Yeah, so look, I think um, there's the sort of the surface level stuff that's kind of, um, I guess, what, what we put on the outside of the tin, which is, you know, if, if you come and join us, you get some liquidity in your stock. You know, if you're a, a lot of the business owners that we talk to are baby boomers, they want to reward their staff. So they want to do stock options for all of their, their staff. It's something you can do with a PLC you can't do in a small business. Um, other companies join us because they want to go on the acquisition spree. So they kind of got a shopping list of companies and they want to join us and then build out their, their empire um, below us. People join for a whole host of reasons. So those are, I guess, the, um, uh, the, the flowers that attract the, the companies into, into the, the ecosystem. The, the stuff that people probably don't really... Um, understand but I think is is the kind of the, the heart of it is making sure that you create an environment where those companies have the autonomy um, they have the communication they have opportunities to work together but they're not pressured to work together and I think a, a lot of what I spend my time on is 
making sure that we have systems and structures in place that will allow um, those ecosystems to, to thrive, even if we come across problems. So, I mean, a little, little bit like if you take from, from the US and example, you know, we talk about the, the principles of each company joining a Senate. Um, and that's really designed to offset the power of the board of directors. Um, you know, that Senate has ultimate control. The board of directors is just to ratify those decisions made by the, the principles themselves. And so a lot of this stuff comes about by going, okay, well, what's, what's the human nature that we need to fight? And I'll give you a great example. You know, I get uh, once a week, somebody applies to, you know, they want to be on our board. They, they've seen the growth that we've done. They, they want to be a part of that. And it always comes from the point of view of, uh, you know, I've got an MBA from this university. I've got three years at McKinsey. I can come in and tell those businesses how to run. And I can tell you right now, these businesses are running really ineffectively. And, and we all, yeah, that's exactly what we don't want. <laughs> um, you know, that, because the minute you get into that mindset or that of that kind of ego of, you know, best, the whole thing fall, falls apart because then you're, yeah, the, the dynamic shifts completely. Whereas um, we've worked hard to, to have on our board people that don't have that ego. Um, you know, they work, it, it, it's, yeah, we really do work for the majority of the shareholders. Um, and, uh, and, and even to the point of, you know, I've been around the block a few times. Um, I will, the, uh, certainly in the early days, the principals would ask me advice on elements of their business that I could potentially have helped with. And I very deliberately didn't give that advice. I said, look, go and talk to your peers. You've got some incredible business owners in the group. Go and talk to them about their experiences. Um, and it's not just a, you know, that's a much healthier environment, but it also works because if I give that advice and they go and apply their interpretation of that advice and it works, then I'm a genius and they keep coming back to me for more advice, which doesn't scale. Um, if they apply their interpretation of that advice and it fails, then I'm an idiot and I'm the idiot that's yeah now responsible for everything that's gone, gone wrong. So, um, whereas, you know, in a typical, uh, PLC environment, the, the senior management is expected to have all of the answers, whereas uh, I'm, I'm quite comfortable not knowing the answers. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, Rich, you know, you do a lot of coaching and, you know, it's one of the big principles of coaching is don't tell people what to do. It's yeah. help guide them to where the answers lie. Uh, right. And, and it's certainly something, Rich, I know you have a lot of experience with. So it maybe comes back to that whole you know, Calum, one of the things you're doing inherently through that process really is being a coach and a mentor without really giving them the answers, uh, which is a perfect environment. Yeah, and the peer yeah, little do they know. I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and the peer-to-peer -peer collaboration is absolutely key because no matter, uh, you know, whether it be as a holding company or as a uh, direct supervisor or as an owner of a business, uh, coming from, even if you have the information, as you said, Calum, uh, suggesting a way they could go about getting that from a peer they're always going to listen with a different ear because that's here even if you can speak from experience the peer 
has a more recent story probably than you, or they have a different way to go about it. And there's just a different listening and application of what's being told when it's shared peer to peer. How do you, uh, do, do you have any forums or communication or how to use technology? Like how do you encourage peer to peer uh, with companies that you work with? Yeah, no, we do it a lot. So um, obviously in the pre COVID world, uh, we would get together twice a year um, and it was kind of two or three days, mostly social, um, a little bit of uh, a little sort of bit of uh, talking. But um, we also we, we use Slack. So basically everyone is on there. Anyone that has any challenges in their businesses, they can push it out. Um, uh, what, one of the questions we've always been asked, like I said, we've been working on this model for about five years. And one of the questions that we got asked for a lot of that five years was, well, what happens if there's another global financial crisis? And my answer was always, look, I went through the last GFC on my own and I ended up having to lay off 38 of 42 employees. And it was a brutal experience. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I would much rather have been in a group that has a vested interest in my success than trying to figure this stuff out on my own. And even if I'd still had to lay off 38 or 42 employees, at least I would have had some people there that could have given me some support and some ideas about the best way to do it and you know, had been through it before. What was so encouraging um, and, and really inspiring actually was as soon as COVID hit, the level of engagement between all of the companies of, hey, look, this is something that we're trying out. We had one company that said, look, um, we, we, we really don't want to lay off people. So we've asked everyone to take a 20% uh, pay cut so that we don't have to lay off people. Um, it worked really well, but we completely screwed this thing up. We shouldn't have done it like this and and so other companies like just that sharing with everyone else because they don't want anyone else in the group to to make those mistakes and so there's been so much kind of sharing and best practice um i mean even john who's not not in the group has been sharing ideas with, with us um from from his sector experience and and so we've actually found not just within the group but also within kind of a wider community uh, people have been very open, but uh, yeah, no, I think it's, you, you need to bring on that, um, that platform to allow communication. We also do training. So every sort of three or four months, we'll bring in an external speaker that um, can talk and kind of have breakout rooms and stuff. So yeah, we, we, we do quite a lot. Callum, this whole subject is fascinating to me and, and uh, love reading about it and, and learning more about it. And you ask entrepreneurs a lot, what's the biggest hurdle you ever had and how did you overcome it? <laughs> as an entrepreneur yourself, you know, give us a little bit about your biggest hurdle as an entrepreneur and how you overcame it or how you look at it in the future. Uh, no, I haven't had any, John. It's, my, it's been so smooth. It's, uh, it's really, really, really easy. <laughs> All your learning lessons have been off of wins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just been, uh, it's been a joy. Um, <laughs> No, look, I think uh, you have so, so many and, and um, yeah, each one at the time is the, the hardest thing and you can't imagine it, life ever getting better or uh, anything ever being so tough again. 
Um, like I, I went through, I had a recruitment company at the height of the dot-com that was providing IP engineers to telcos in Europe. Um, as a 24-year-old entrepreneur, I, I thought I was very clever, um, making lots of money, having lots of fun. Uh, really thought that was going to last forever. And then uh, the bubble burst. I discovered I wasn't nearly as... Sorry, for one second. Yeah, discovered I wasn't nearly as uh, clever as I thought I was. Um, so that that was a kind of a, a big shock and then went through the global financial crisis. As I mentioned, laid, laid off a couple of bit, um, or a lot of people there and, and closed a couple of businesses. Um, and then we, we did a public listing um, and we got uh, a guy fraudulently sold 3 million shares and destroyed our share price. And... Uh, um, uh, went went through that. So yeah, had had a few things, um, and I, I mean I'm very open about them. I talk about them in in the book, and um, you know it's excruciating to go through. But I think for for anyone that's going through COVID now and thinking it's the end of the world, the reality is, however bad it feels, you get through it, um, and it it is brutal. But you do it gives you scars and it gives you experience and you come back stronger. And, uh, you know, you've, um, part, part of the reason why I launched that little podcast, uh, Callum connects, which is, um, uh, it's literally, it's five minutes of an entrepreneur explaining how they got over their challenges was that I've always been very lucky to have a great group of entrepreneurs around me. And, and I would pick up the phone and I'll say, you know, what, what are you guys working on? And yeah, invariably we'd talk about the challenges that we were going through and how we'd solved them. And I'd always come off those calls being inspired and going, right, yeah, I need to do it that way and, and go back and sort of reinvigorate it, get back into it. And so, um, yeah, just sitting around last month going, well, how can I share that with a wider audience? So that was how the, uh, the Callum Connects podcast started. Awesome. Well, there's certain, you know, it's certainly true that conflicts and challenges can build stronger relationships and or make you stronger as an individual. And we're seeing that certainly before our eyes right now. So Colin, thanks for joining us today uh, to talk a little bit more about the future of business and where we're going. And hopefully your next book's coming out soon. You're, you're on a roll here. You got three and you, know, you got, you got uh, some more behind <laughs> you here coming. No, I think I'm, I think I'm done for a while. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks, Colin. That's been fun. Thanks, John. Thanks, Rich.